Jonah chapter 3, pick me up in verse 1. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, underline this phrase, the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So, verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, a day's journey is about 17 miles. Whenever you see a day's journey in the Bible, it is about a 17 to 18 mile journey. So when we talk about a three days' journey, uh, it's about 51 to 54 miles in breadth. Now, I don't know my geography here really well. San Francisco's how many miles from here? I done heard too many different answers, so let's keep moving. Um, <laughs> Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days, verse 4, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, that is, literally in the Hebrew, from the richest of them to the least. In the Hebrew, that means to the poorest. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Lord, have mercy. He puts the animals on a fast. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered, verse 8, with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many years ago, in sections of Eastern Europe, in places like Bohemia and Cilicia, in certain churches, if you were to go to a church many years ago, in certain sections of Eastern Europe, watch it, when you walked in, what you would see is, you would see a pulpit in the shape of an upright whale. Don't miss it. Many years ago, in sections of Eastern Europe, if you were to walk into church, one of the first things you would notice, one of the first things you would be struck by is that in many of their churches, not most of them, not all of them, in many of their churches, they would have a pulpit constructed in the shape of an upright whale. And the insides of that upright whale would be hollowed out. Follow it. At the base of that upright whale would be some stairs. And coming out of the mouth of that upright whale would be a podium. So that when it was time for the preaching of the word, after the choir had sung, you would watch as the pastor 
who was called to preach the word would come to the base of that upright whale and would ascend the stairs through the belly of the whale and would then give the word out of the mouth of the whale. I'm going too fast. Many years ago in sections of Eastern Europe, you would walk in, you would see a podium, a pulpit constructed in the shape of an upright whale. Its insides would be hollowed out. There would be stairs at the base of it. When it came time for the preaching of the word, the pastor would come and he would ascend those stairs, which means he would literally have to pass through the belly of the whale. Out of the mouth of the whale would be a podium. So that after he had passed through the belly of the whale, he could now give his assignment. He could now walk in his, what we call vocation, comes from the Latin vocatio. So that he could walk in his calling. Parenthetically, too many of us have jobs, we don't have vocations. That's another sermon for another time. So that, the image here that the architects and that the church was trying to convey Sunday in and Sunday out and Sunday in and Sunday out is that sequentially we cannot walk in our calling until we first go through the belly of a whale. So that interruptions precede assignments. So that the act of this pastor going through the belly of the whale and then giving the word, he was symbolically showing that before he could bless you, he had to have personally gone through himself. Story is told of the great D. Martin Lloyd Jones Jr. No, not not Jr., but the D, great D. Martin Lloyd Jones, who was the pastor of the great church there in London in the mid twentieth century, mid to late twentieth century. And and this great preacher, this preacher's preacher, was once um, asked a question about a young, charismatic, gifted preacher who could preach the birds out of the tree. They said, uh, uh, Pastor Pastor Lloyd Jones, what do you think about this young preacher? And Pastor Lloyd Jones says, He ain't been through anything yet. Translation, he has not passed through the belly of his whale yet. So that it is a hard lesson. We have been in the book of Jonah and we've been talking about interruptions. And what we've learned in the book of Jonah is God's interruptions are tethered into his assignments. That oftentimes before we can walk into our calling, we had to have first weathered a storm. The problem with our generation is you want to get where you're going quick, fast, in a hurry, and you want to go ahead and walk in your assignment and walk in your vocation. But what you need to understand is you ain't ready to walk in your vocation until you've passed through your own proverbial belly of a whale. You need to go through something. When you all bake a cake... It's got butter, it's got eggs, it's got flour, it's got sugar... I don't sit down and eat a stick of butter by itself. I don't just drink a raw egg. I don't chomp on some sugar or some flour. 
I don't want those ingredients raw. What I want you to do first is I need you to beat them up. I need you to mix them up. I need you to stir them up. Then I need you to apply some heat. The problem with many of us, I know you think you're fine and all that. I know you think you're gifted. But you ain't blessing people's lives because right now you're a raw stick of butter. God's got to let you go through something. God's got to let you be beat up. God's got to put some heat on you before he's ready to give you. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, the Bible says that he took bread, watch the sequence, he took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and then he gave it. It was Henry Nouwen who says what Jesus does to the bread, he does with each of us. He takes us at salvation. He blesses us with gifts. But before he can give us, he must first break us. We must pass through. Come here, Joseph. If you read Joseph in the Bible, when you first meet him, man, he's an arrogant punk kid. Always bragging on his dreams. His brothers don't want to be around him. He's got nauseating pride. But when we see him at the end of the story, the whole world's flocking to him. He's humble. He doesn't harbor bitterness or unforgiveness. What changed him? God stuck him in an oven. He had him go through a pit. He had him go through some things. All I'm trying to say is there will be times in your life in which it feels as if all hell has broken loose in your life. You will go through crisis. You will go through storms. You will go through interruptions. And there will be times in your life in which you will be tempted to get mad at God. But what I want you to see is what you feel as if is God being angry with you. God is actually doing it out of his sovereign grace. He's turning up the heat on your life so that he could give you as a blessing to others. We don't walk in God's assignments without, first of all, going through something. You can't pastor me if you ain't been through. You can't counsel me if you ain't been through. We must all go through. This is the story of Jonah. God shows up in chapter 1. He says, Jonah, here's your assignment. I want you to head due east to Nineveh. Jonah says, thanks, but no thanks. He heads due west to Tarshish. God then puts on his running shoes, and he comes after Jonah. And we learn, man, that grace is not letting you do you. Grace is not God watching you wallow in sin and not coming after you, but grace is coming after you and coming after you and coming after you. That's what God does in chapter 1. He sends the storm and he uh, oversees the lots and uh, he hurls them into a sea and he uh, points the fish. And finally, in chapter 2, Jonah, having gone through the interruption, is now in rehab. He's dealing with his idols with his issues. It's painful. It's lonely. Now in chapter 3, watch it. Look at verse 1. And I'm hoping I can get out of verse 1 today. We may not even get out of verse 1. The Bible says, don't miss it, the word of the Lord 
came to Jonah, don't miss it, a second time. Ah, let me stop right there. God could have looked at Jonah. When Jonah ran away in chapter 1, he could have said, that's okay, Jonah. That's fine. You do you. I'll find somebody else. If you check my resume, God could say, I've used bushes. I've used donkeys. The sun does not rise and set on you, Jonah. I'll just find somebody or something else. God could have said, you had your chance. I'm moving on. You failed. You sinned. I'm done with you. But then in chapter 3, verse 1, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Anybody here ever had God come to them a second time? And a fifth, and a 17th, and a 38th. I'm here to tell you that what this church is about, this church is not about legalism. This church is not about put on your dancing shoes and perform for God. And if you don't perform, you know, God's going to put you on the bench. No, we serve a second time God. We serve a 30th time God. We serve a God of another chance and another chance and another chance. Watch this now. So that what this text begins with, it begins on a note of God having interrupted God. Watch it now. But we learn that God's interruptions are not his eruptions. When God interrupts us, it is not his eruptions. In other words, God interrupting us is not an outburst of anger from a petulant, punitive God. So the very fact that God comes after Jonah again and again and again and gives him another shot shows us, watch it now, the patience of God. So that what we see in verse 1 is not a God of wrath. It's not a God of condemnation. It is a patient God. I want you to write down Exodus chapter 34, and I, 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 I want to just encourage you, if you have some time this week, just, just sit and marinate in Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 34, God and his servant Moses is having a conversation, and God is not happy with what he sees. He has just delivered his people from bondage in Egypt. He has opened up the Red Sea miraculously. They have walked through on dry ground. He then closes up that Red Sea on their pursuers, the Egyptians. He has miraculously set them free. And how do they thank them? They wait until Moses goes up Mount Sinai to have a talk with God. And then at the base of that mountain, they worship another God. And God is shaking his head going, mm, mm, mm. now ain't this something? I deliver you and I rescue you and you're going to worship somebody else. So God and Moses have this exchange. God says, Moses, I'm going to wipe everybody out. I'm going to start over with you. Moses says, uh-uh, can't do that. You made a promise. Moses then comes back to God and they have this back and forth. And all of a sudden, Moses, out of the blue, says to God, show me your glory. God says to Moses, no one can see my face and live. But here's what I'm going to do for you, Moses. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock. 
And then I'm going to pass by. I'm going to make all my goodness, he says, pass by. I'm going to let you see not my face, but my exhaust. So here's Moses. 80-something years of age, hiding in the cleft of a rock, and God marches past Moses. Now, the question on the table is, Moses, what did you see when God passed by? Look at it with me on the screen, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Watch it. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I'll read it again. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Question, Moses, what did you see when God walked by? Answer, I saw the patience of God. Now watch this. If you read your Bible, that statement in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, watch it now, is stated seven times in the Old Testament verbatim. Seven, the number for completion. It is as if God is saying to all of the Old Testament authors... I want you to continually write down this statement of who I am. Why? Because I want to seal it in the minds of the readers forever. I am patient. So let me read not all seven of them, three of them. Look at Nehemiah 9 verse 17 on the screen. It says, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery and sin. In other words, God's people have sinned, they have messed up, they have blown it, but watch it, but you are a God ready to forgive, hear it, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 103 verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Joel chapter 2 verse 13 says, return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Now look in your Bibles, Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. It says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why? For I knew, I knew, I knew that you are gracious, God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Is this sinking in? God is patient. He's patient with his people. The idea of the word patience in the Greek, it is the Greek word makrothumos. It is a compound word. Macro meaning long or large and thumos from which we get the English word thermometer. It's, a, it's an instrument we use to measure heat. It means anger. So literally makrothumos means long to anger. How is a person's patience tried? You only try a person's patience in your sin. In other words, if you really want to see the patience of God, God's patience is clearly seen not when you dot all your I's and cross all your T's. It is only seen when you fall and fall and fall and fall and God never leaves. God 
is patient with me. Someone needs to hear that word today, that God is patient with me. Can you just take your hand and put it over your heart and say these words with me? God is patient with me. Now, I really want you to get this word. Say it again. God is patient with me. For those of us who are parents, remember our kids when, when they were just learning how to walk? Right? We get so excited, man. They're, they're wobbling. Those chubby ankles. And we're like, come to daddy, come to daddy. Corey, Corey, get, get the camera. Won't you snap the picture, man? We're going to tweet this out, Instagram it out. Come to daddy, come to daddy. They take a step, and they take another step. Bam. At no point do you go, idiot. Dummy. Now what you do is you rush in. You pick them up. You hold them. You say, it's okay, it's okay. Put it back down. Let's try it again. Come on. Bam! Or think about when you taught your kids to ride a bike. You were so convinced they were going to blow it, you had them put on the helmet, elbow pads, knee pads. You gave all the instruction in the world, knowing, knowing they were going to fall. And when they fell, you did not rush in in condemnation. How much more so God? Proverbs 24 says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up again. What makes him righteous, even though he falls, he gets back up. But how does he get back up? The patience and grace of God. Your sin does not surprise God. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Before he even saved you, he knew all the times you would fail him. Would you just think about that? Your fornication the other night did not surprise him. There is nothing we do in our lives that occurs to God. Your porn addiction does not throw him off. Your gossipy tongue, your divisive spirit, your slander, your greed, your slothfulness, Bam, 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 does not cause him to rush in in condemnation. Slow to anger. God is patient with me. Jonah falls, and the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. So that, hear it, we learn that the patience of God is always tethered 
to his purpose. God is patient with Jonah because God does not just care about those people down the street, round the corner. He also cares about his prophet. So that what we learned in the first week is true, that God doesn't just use people to accomplish tasks, he also uses tasks to accomplish people. That there is a work God is doing, not just in the people of Nineveh, but he wants to also do it in his prophet. But in order to do that work in his prophet, he has to be patient. So now he comes to Jonah, a second time the text says, and he gives Jonah his assignment. And what we've been learning, what we've been discovering is, for all of us in this room, all of us leasing time on God's green earth, there's a call of God on your life. There's an assignment on your life. And God's call and God's assignment is so much more than making money. It is so much more than sending your kids to a certain kind of school. It's so much more than having kids. He has a call and he has an assignment on your life that goes goes past jobs and paychecks and houses and zip codes. You were created by God to give God glory. But now the question on the table is, how do I know what God's assignment is for my life? This text helps us. God comes to Jonah. He says, I've been patient with you. Coming back to you a second time. And here's your assignment. I want you, again, make your way east. And I want you to go after a group of spiritual runaways who are doing life on their own terms. Jonah, I want you to go in and get them. And when you walk in, I want you to proclaim the word I'm going to give to you. And that word is a call to repent. In other words, Jonah, I want you to walk into that city to this group of spiritual runaways, this group of spiritual fugitives. I want to use you as a vehicle for repentance to turn them from doing them into making them followers of me. I'm going to use you to get these runaways. Now watch it. How do I know God's assignment for my life? Don't you see the irony? God is using a runaway to get runaways. God says to a man who has been running away, I've interrupted you, runaway. I'm rerouting you to send you to go get runaways to reroute them back to me. So that God says in so many words, Jonah, My assignment on your life is going to be rooted in your struggle. I'm going too fast. Oftentimes, our mess becomes our ministry. Oftentimes, our mess becomes the fertilizer God uses to grow us, which becomes the stage God uses in assigning us. So that, if you ever want to know, what's my assignment? Take inventory of your struggles. 
Anybody ever read the book or, or seen the movie Come Fly With Me? It's a great book based on a guy named Frank Abagnale. True story. Frank Abagnale was one of the biggest cons and frauds in the United States. Conned banks out of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars through writing bad checks. He was the biggest fraud this country had ever known. He eventually gets caught. You know what he's doing now? Working for the government, helping them catch frauds. His mess became his ministry. I've met my share of social workers throughout my life who are passionate about restoring broken homes, who are passionate about coming alongside of kids who have been abused. And if you talk to some of them, not many, not most, but some of them long enough, they'll tell you that their passion to restore and repair broken homes was birthed out of the fact that they know the pain of what it's like to grow up in a broken home. Their mess has become their ministry. I know of counselors who help people navigate dysfunction and pain. And some of them, won't say most, won't say many, some of them got into helping others navigate dysfunction and pain because they knew what it was like to go through dysfunction and pain, and they wanted answers. And in the process of getting answers for their own dysfunction and pain, the lights came on, and they realized there's a calling here. I want to help others turn the lights on. Oftentimes, our mess becomes our ministry, which means this. Don't waste your pain in the sovereignty of God who oversees everything. There is not in my life not one single solitary wasted experience. Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good. That Greek word all is very interesting. If you study it in the Greek, it's, it's an interesting kind of construction, that Greek word all. It, it's really interesting. It means all. <laughs> that God uses all things, our, our triumphs and our tragedies, our victories and our defeats, our moments of walking in the spirit and our moments of walking in the flesh. He uses all of those things. As my grandmama used to say, God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. God can even take your divorce. God can take your failures. God can take your adultery. He doesn't decree it. He doesn't want you to do it, but he can still take it and use it and get glory out of it. So that oftentimes we see that our assignments sometimes are rooted in our struggles. Second thing we see, though, is that sometimes our assignments, though, can be uncomfortable. 
God says to Jonah, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. The message that I tell you, those phrases, arise, go to, call out, are imperatives, they're commands. Jonah, here's your assignment. I'm not suggesting. I am commanding you, go into Nineveh. Verse 3, so Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Here it is, verse 4, look at it, make a note of it. Jonah began. Now that Hebrew word began is very interesting. That Hebrew word began, listen now, it means to profane. It means to defile. It means to become common. Get the picture. Jonah is a Jew. God's called him and assigned him to go into a Gentile city. If you know anything about Jews... And Gentiles, when God sets up the Old Testament, God is very concerned about something called their ceremonial purity. And he tells Jews not to mix with Gentiles. They, they weren't to hang out with them. They weren't to go into houses with them because it could compromise their ceremonial purity. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 10, Peter is staying at a guy named Simon the Tanner's house. Simon the Tanner is a Gentile working with dead animals, and while staying in this house, God gives Peter a vision. In this vision, he lays out some ribs and some chitlins. Chitlins? Anybody know? And Peter says, no, 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 I, I can't, I can't touch that. It's unclean. God says, Peter, I'm doing a new thing here. Don't you call anything I've created unclean. Go ahead and eat you some chitlins. I got some hot sauce for you. It's good. Try it. But when we come to, to our text, text says Jonah began, which means for him to carry out his assignment, walking into this Gentile city means he's got to compromise his ceremonial purity. Which means his very presence there is uncomfortable. Listen, God has an assignment on your life. He's got an assignment on my life. God's assignments are not a walk in the park. Some of you all are waiting for God to do something new in your life. But that new thing you want him to do you're looking for something that's going to be a comfort freeze, that's going to be very comfortable. Some of you will settle for a very mediocre life because you're not willing to do hard things. I meet these people all the time. All the time. And typically the profile of them, they're in their late 30s, early 40s. Making a lot of money, good money, clocking in, clocking out. They got the house, got that nice SUV, come home, lovely family. Uh, things are going well. They're making all this money. And yet, even though they're making all this money, their soul is dying because they have a job and not a vocation. Because what happened to them is they went the money route, not the calling route. And so there's no sense of fulfillment, no sense of happiness, none of that. I'm here to tell you, you can be as broke as the day is long, but if you are doing what God created you to do, you will be happy and joyful and fulfilled, and you can be as rich as the day is long, but if you ain't walking in your calling, you're going to be miserable. I, I, I want to I talk to you 20-somethings in here. Do the hard things now. 
Get after it now. Go to school now. Burn the midnight oil now. Do your began now until life locks you in. Because I talk to these 30-somethings, 40-somethings, they're locked in. Locked in. And so even though they're making all this money, they're going to a job they can't stand, they're not doing what they were created to do, they're locked in, they have to pay these bills or whatever, and at some point they traded their soul for the dollar. When God calls, there will be difficulty. When God called me to come here, I had just been in New York a couple of months, man, and I had to have this conversation with the pastors there. I knew my, my name was going to be treated like mud, but okay, God says, put on your big boy pants. Have the conversation. Sit down with them, man. It was a tough conversation. It was hard. It was difficult. It was tough. I planted a church in Memphis, Tennessee with 26 people in a living room in a city I'd never been to before, but I'd left a 6,000-person church making good money, steady paycheck. If I were to die right now, I would say, bury me in Memphis. Why? Because oftentimes your place of greatest sac sacrifice becomes your place of greatest satisfaction. Oh, I'm going too fast. The problem with Americans, and particularly American Christians, we don't want to sacrifice. So what we do is we look at those people we deem to be successful and we automatically assume that they were born that way. And so, as one preacher says, it's a corny cliche, we want their glory, we just don't want their story. You cannot get to where God wants you to be unless you're willing to sacrifice. Let's go home on this one. Jonah walks into Nineveh, and I love it. The text says, only Jew, Gentile city. Nineveh is one of the main cities of Assyria. If you know anything about the Assyrians, some of the most violent people ever created, they came up with something called flaying. They would take their enemies and skin them alive. It was the Assyrians, not the Romans, who came up with crucifixion. The Romans popularized it. The Assyrians came up with They were violent. They were vicious. And here's what God says, Jonah, here's your assignment. Walk into the city and say, yet 40 days. Now, if I'm Jonah, I'm like, do I get an army to come with me? Do, I, do my boys back me up? No, no, no. You go on by yourself, walk into the city, Jew, all Gentile city, violent nation, yet 40 days. Let's go home on this one. God's assignments are risky. When God calls us into something, he always calls us into something that we don't have the capacity to fulfill on our own. If you can do it on your own, you don't need God. And if you don't need God, it ain't really an assignment from God. When God calls, 
There's always a risk factor. There's always an element to it that is beyond your ability so that you have to lean into him by faith and trust him. And yet there is no faith unless there's risk. You know, we, we can sing all this faith stuff we want, but if you ain't going to get out of the boat and take a risk, it ain't faith. I love the story. The story is told of a world-famous tightrope artist, a true story, who, who one day stretched out a tightrope from one side of Niagara Falls to the other. He stands on this tightrope in front of this big crowd. He says, who here believes that I can walk on this tightrope from one side of Niagara Falls to the other without falling off? The crowd responds, we believe, we believe. A few minutes later, he gets a wheelbarrow, stands on that tightrope with his wheelbarrow and says, who here believes that I can wheel this wheelbarrow from one, from one side of Niagara Falls to the other without falling off? The crowd responds, we believe, we believe. He then says, who here believes I can take a person and put them inside this wheelbarrow, wheel them from one side of Niagara Falls to the other without falling off? The crowd responded, we believe, we believe. He then says, who's getting in? Nothing. You know, we, we read about people of great faith in the Bible. Women of faith like Rahab. We go, we believe. We believe. We read about Daniel, the lion's den. We believe. We believe. We read about the people of God cornered up against the Red Sea. God opens up the Red Sea. We believe. We believe. And God is saying, when are you going to get in? So during my next 20, 30, 40 years together until I become pastor emeritus and get on the next pastor's nerves at this church, I'm going to press on something, and it is something you have to battle against, the American God, the American idol that we all struggle with. And my suspicion is it's especially true here in the Bay, the Disneyland of the world, the American idol is that of comfort. And we churches are an accomplice to the crime. Are, are, are the seats comfortable enough for you? When you walked in, do people speak to you? Do, do, do your kids like children's church? Was the service too long? Was the preacher too long? Was it comfortable? How about the air? Was the air just perfect for you? The, the, these are 21st century problems that the first century world knew nothing alike. And so I want you to understand when God calls you, he does not call you to be comfortable. He hands you a wheelbarrow and he says, will you jump in? If it ain't risky, it ain't faith. What risk are you taking? What wheelbarrow have you jumped in lately as the band comes? What's the most courageous thing you've ever done in your life? What act of courage have you taken in the last five years? In the last three years? In 2016? So if you come to this church and you think 
that this church is going to revolve around you so that you're nice and comfortable. Listen, if you walk in, there's going to be a day nobody's going to speak to you. I don't like that. But if you're going to pitch a fit because you came to church and the usher, I'm sorry, the usher, the usher didn't speak to you, or if you didn't like the way the choir sang, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just here to tell you, I got bigger fish to fry. We, we just got, we got bigger stuff. Now listen, we're going to do all that we can. We're going to do all that we can to be open and to be welcome and all this other stuff. But there are people outside these walls who are dying on their way to hell. And my, my, on the top of my to-do list is not whether or not the usher was nice to you. took my wife to Dubai not too long ago. Had to preach out there at a conference. Had to. Had to. And my 15-year-old says, no fair. Mama goes to all the best places. I said, you're right. Well, why? Well, because I love her more than you. I said, boy, you are not the center of my world. It's God, then your mama, then you. Hear me. You need to know you are not the center of the world. That God is not your cosmic concierge who exists to facilitate your life. God ain't your armor bearer. God is not your administrative assistant. He's your boss. And when God says jump in the wheelbarrow, we jump in. And he says, trust me, I've been wheeling this wheelbarrow for many years. In fact, God will tell you as you jump in, I had Moses in here. I had David in here. I had Rahab in here. I had Ruth in here. Will you jump in? As we prepare now to ask the question, what do we do with the word in which we've just heard? Jonah walks into town and he says, yet 40 days. That's the grace. Jonah does not walk into town preaching condemnation. He does not say time is up. He says there's 40 days. Translation, God is giving you time to repent. That's the grace. Paul picks up on this in Acts 17 when he says, in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God, I believe, has brought someone in this place today to interrupt you. And it's been an act, it's been an act of grace 
where God is saying to you, I have brought you in here to hear this word so that I can interrupt and reroute you. This is grace. If God were mean, he wouldn't even give you the warning. But he's brought you in here that he would, by his patience, interrupt you that he can reassign you for the second time, for the fifth time, for the 17th time, for the 101st time. God is patient. I give a call right now. I give a call. I give a call. I give a call. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are at the center of your world. God is not. The same God who sent his prophet and said, yet 40 days, is the same God who is speaking now. And he's saying, stop doing you. Submit your life to me. I also give a call for those of you who would call yourself followers of Jesus Christ. And yet you're doing things and doing life on your own terms. And you want to repent. You want to submit to this patient God. But I also give a call to someone here today and you're going, I have not taken risks. I've been playing it safe. This altar is open for you as well. We want to pray for you. That God would give you the boldness and the courage to jump into his wheelbarrow and to submit and surrender to him. So we're going to call those for salvation. We're going to call those to repentance who are doing life on their own terms. And we're going to call those followers of Jesus Christ who says, I, I, I need prayer just for courage and boldness to be risky for Jesus. Father, in the name of Jesus, I do pray that your spirit would continue to walk these aisles. Stop by every seat in this place, Lord Jesus, I pray. I pray right now that you would draw unto yourself you would save souls. You would return lost, wandering sheep who've been doing life on their own terms back to you. That you would embolden those who've been playing it safe to be courageous and risky for you. Speak, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.